Hey, everybody, and welcome to week 27 of 52 Weeks of Empowerment. I am your host, Andrea Pagnozzi. I'm also a career empowerment coach who is fiercely dedicated to getting everyone in 2022 to helping them realize their true career potential. And that includes people that may be coming back to the workforce who have a lot of years of experience. They may have been given an opportunity of a lifetime to retire early and they're finding themselves a little bit lost and not ready to fully retire. It's been nice. It's been a few months of rest and relaxation, but we've got a looming possible recession. We also have a very real inflation situation where people are a little bit nervous with the stock market doing what it's doing here as July of 2022. We're realizing that, hey, maybe financially we looked good in the beginning of the year and now I'm starting to worry. And and I'm realizing I have a lot of work still in me. I want to accomplish other things. So I have had clients that have been very, very honest with me and themselves in these situations. But when it comes to finding the job and actually getting the job, they've had some difficulties. So today we're going to talk about not just those people, but others that are still very much in the workplace that are finding it difficult to get hired because they're overqualified. And that is a unique situation that I think warrants some discussion. Lately, I've had the pleasure of taking on some pretty impressive clients whose resumes are chock full of robust experience. And when they hired me, I simply thought, mm, they're probably looking to go solo and start their own business. Then I realized pretty quickly when we have our consultant conversation to see if we're a match, they start telling their story and I'm realizing these people can't get a job and they need my help to get a job. They are articulate. They are talented. They are applying with some very polished resumes. And sometimes they don't even get the interview. They're fed up and I don't blame them. So I help them get hired. And today I'm going to share with you some of the same techniques I help them to use to successfully get that interview because people need coaches and some people are afraid to contact a coach and, and realize that they need the help. So I'm going to give you the help. But today we're going to get very real with the subject. I'm going to be more of a consultant than a coach and share with you a behind the scenes look at what I refer to as utter nonsense. It is. It's nonsense because what companies are doing is they're making a ton of assumptions. And the funny part is they won't ask the questions that would uncover the truth. They don't even get to the questions because they don't call the candidate back to get them in for an interview, even a screening interview to ask the tough questions. They just tap out. We all know what they say about assumptions, but assumptions represent one fourth of the things that in life hold us back as human beings from advancing, advancing a conversation, advancing our career, advancing relationships. Assumptions represent one fourth of the things that hold us back. If you've ever heard me on previous episodes talk about gales, it represents the four things that hold us back, assumptions being one of them. Gail, G-A-I-L, which ironically is also my sister's name, who's also a coach, <laughs> but Gail is an acronym, G-A-I-L, for gremlins, assumptions, interpretations, and limiting beliefs. Gremlins are those little things on your shoulder that say, 
don't do it. Don't even bother. You never get hired. You never get the girl. You shouldn't be doing this. You're only going to hurt yourself. Whatever situation in life you may be in where you hear that little voice, that's what a gremlin is. It's holding you back. And it's usually fueled by experiences that haven't gone your way. People in your life that always told you not to do those things. Your mother, your grandmother, your friends. That's where gremlins derive from. Assumptions are just that. They're assuming that you know either because of experience and similar things have gone a certain way. So you just simply assume or you've seen it happen to other people. So you simply assume. And what usually is the case with an assumption is you don't have all the facts. So you're making an ass out of you and me. That's breaking the word down. Assume. A-S-S-U-M-E. So that's where assumptions lie. Interpretations, it could be a complete misunderstanding. Again, you don't have all the facts, but you're interpreting one thing that person doesn't like. They thought I was useless. That was a terrible interview. They're never going to call me back. And nine times out of 10 in my life, when I've said those things, I've gotten the job. So I couldn't have been more wrong about my interpretation. The times I thought I knocked it out of the park, that's when I didn't get a call So interpretations are the way that you derive what's happened in a situation, either because of your experience or because that feeling. And sometimes it's on and sometimes it's off. And then finally, the L and Gale are limiting beliefs. And those are usually 110% derived from your tribe. Your tribe has taught you to look both ways before crossing, to be vigilant and careful and not take uncalculated risks. And so the things that you learn over time become those limiting beliefs. I'm not as good as, I can't get, I won't get, I don't get. It's these less than feelings and your tribe doesn't mean to make you feel that way. It's absolutely well-intended, but they're trying to hold you back from, from further pain. And what they may be holding you back from is further gain, not pain. So those are the gales. And so assumptions create this imbalance between fact and fiction. And when I'm telling groups or individuals, individuals that they're doing that, that they're making assumptions about prospective candidates that are coming into their organization that may come in with a ton of experience and they're not even interviewing them. When I talk to the groups or individuals that are doing this, they realize how many times they've probably tapped out of situations that could have been outstanding for their business, brought in the right candidate, but instead they went with the lesser experienced candidate thinking they could mold them. And that person turned out not to be very effective because they assumed many things about overqualified people who come to an interview that truly want the job, that can do the job, have done the job. And because of assumptions, they hire someone else and they think they can save money and they think they can mold these people. And as I said, it doesn't always turn out rosy. So it is nonsense. What I do as a career empowerment coach is enable people to overcome that nonsense. So we're going to do that today. Let's begin. So I want to start out talking a little bit about not a statistic, but a general fact about the job market as it stands July 2022. The average cost to onboard a new hire is double their salary. I've been in training and development for a long, long time, and I can vouch that it has always been that way. It's not a July 2022 thing. It's always been that way. The average cost to onboard a new hire is double their salary. 
And I'm going to break it down because it's a bit of a broad estimate. It follows the old adage that you get out of something what you put into it. So between online certifications, both off the shelf that have been created by training companies and customized training solutions that have been made for your business in terms of onboarding and orienting people to their role, travel, the cost of travel, if you're bringing people in for a live meeting to your home office, that includes airfare, mileage food costs, lodging costs, all of those things. The time away from customers in general, because if you have a customer facing business and this is a role that's customer facing, it's detrimental because the business can't sometimes function without somebody in that role. All of the tchotchkes and paraphernalia that companies like to give to real people in and give them t-shirts with the company's name and logo on it and all of that stuff. Guest speakers that they pay tens of thousands of dollars for skill building exercises and training departments and it all adds up. Every computer costs money. All of the software that's needed and all of the virtual frameworks like a learning management system. And then there's the manager time away from the business because they should be spending time molding and coaching and developing their people. An overqualified person, however, also needs that training. And what sometimes happens is we bring people in, we do bring people into an organization and we assume They have all this experience. They've done the job before. They'll have a lesser steep learning curve. That part is probably true, but they still need to learn the ropes of a company. They need the hands-on devotion of a manager to welcome them to the team and feel like they're part of it. Yet some higher experienced people with this foolish notion that they don't need as much training and they can immediately cannonball into the deep end of the pool. What they'll do is they'll hire somebody today and then tomorrow starts a training class and they're like, well, okay, we'll put them in training. We're only going to give them a week of training instead of three weeks. They can skip this one, this course, that course, and the other course, and we'll get them into the, to the customer quicker. We'll get them into their role quicker. Doesn't help. You have to act as if everybody coming in the organization has never done the job before. Because whether they've done it somewhere else, it means they will probably be more autonomous once they've learned the ropes than somebody who's never done it before. But the bottom line is, if you eliminate the opportunity for them to grow, it's a dumb move for two reasons. Number one, they will not feel like they're part of the team and they'll feel left out. And number two, they have never done the job for your company. So they don't know the processes. And if you beleaguer them from the start, that only makes things worse developmentally. So I know of 11 people, three of them recent coaching clients who left companies, good ones, in the past six months because of this. They were very qualified for the job. They had experience. They came into an organization. Organization pulled them out of standardized new hire training, expected them to be excellent from the get-go, and they never felt part of the team. They never felt qualified to do the job. They didn't know the processes, and they felt very set up for failure, and they left. 11 people. So what that means is 11 people at different companies left those companies. Money wasted. Money and 
and time wasted. As I said prior, you get out of something what you put into it. So if you put into it good things like training and attention and continuity and a feeling of community, especially in a virtual framework, that's really, really important in the early days of tenure with an organization is to bring them in the same way you would anybody else so that they feel the love, that they feel like they're part of a community so that they don't feel that they're disadvantaged. Give them the same time you would anyone else because no matter how experienced they are, they're still new. It puts them at an unfair disadvantage because while they may have had the job, they didn't do it at your company. So give them the courtesy of getting to know you and your company like any other new hire. But there's another reason why people do this and it isn't just because they need to generate business. It's because they fear an overqualified person will be bored. This is also another reason why people don't bother hiring overqualified people. They will get bored and they will leave. And all of that money spent to onboard them, orient them, get them feeling like part of the community and putting all of this emphasis on them will be money down the drain. So in the interview process, there are some steps you need to take to accomplish two things. Number one, you need to tell people, what about the job excites you to convince them that boredom is not an option? for you. And you are also looking for this job that you've done before because you're lazy, because that's another assumption that people make. They don't have any ambition. You can tell that they feel that way if they've given you the interview and you're an overqualified candidate and they start pummeling you with questions about why you want the job, where you see yourself in five or 10 years, what specifically you want to do with your career. It's because they think you're lazy. I want to make sure that this candidate isn't just getting this job because they think it's a cakewalk. It's not. It's hard work. I need to make sure that person is doing their job. If you didn't think that, why would you even consider them as a candidate? If they have this experience, better questions to ask if you're an employer is why does this job excite you? Why do you want to do this again? You clearly have done it for a while. Why does this job excite you? The other thing that you need to do in the interview process, if you're an overqualified candidate, is you need to share with them the concept of when you do something well that you enjoy doing, you have the opportunity to do it somewhere new where you can grow from the experience, bring your knowledge in, fitting with their model, and it can be a magical combination. Assure them, and here's the thing, here's that that other thing you have to convince them of, that recognition doesn't always mean promotion. I'm not looking for a promotion. That's not why I'm coming here. Why I'm coming here is this is a job that I enjoy doing, that I do well. I've done it in different companies well, and I think I can bring that experience here and do it well here, but the difference is this is a different entire company. The product is different. The people are different. The channels and processes are different. I want to learn new ways of doing my job because I don't really want to be a manager. I don't necessarily not want to advance within my role. Do you have those opportunities here? Because the bottom line is some people have left other companies because there have been restructures, reorganizations, the bosses that they once had are not the bosses they have currently. So they're not happy. There's a lot of reasons why people leave and they're not necessarily going to tell you that during an interview. So if you're that overqualified candidate sitting across from you as a 
hiring manager, ask them the questions that you are leaving because of. What type of a leader are you? How do you manage your people? What are some of the things that you can share with me about the way that you work with your people and nurture them? Ask the questions that are getting you from where you are today to where you would rather be. And for those interviewing the overqualified candidate, what you can ask them are questions like, what challenges you? What do you enjoy doing about the job? What excites you? What are some of the things you've been able to overcome in this job? What are some of the specific new things you'd like to learn at this job? Those are questions that can really connect you with an overqualified candidate. It also allows for you to understand what motivates them. What does recognition look like for them? It doesn't always look like promotion. It can look like a bump in pay. It can look like becoming a mentor to others. It can look like a bonus structure that makes sense to them, which they may not be getting where they currently are. And it's interesting. I want to interject a little bit. Companies are actually creatively coming up with bonus structures, even in situations where they never bonused their people before to retain good talent. They're coming up with creative payment systems to keep people engaged. Like at six months as a new hire, they reevaluate you and they give you a bump in salary. So we'll talk a little bit about salary in a second because salary with an overqualified candidate, you may need to get a little bit more aggressive than you're comfortable doing or that you would typically do. We're going to talk about that. But be clear, what does feedback look like when you're a leader? What can I expect from you as my leader? And what do I need to have that will motivate me at my level of experience. That's an important conversation to have. So tell people about the steps, what excites you about the job and how you want to receive recognition. Because those are two of the biggest assumptions. This person is overqualified. I don't know why they're coming in here. And once you pass that sniff test, then really clear conversation can move forward. Another reason for prospective employers to walk away that concerns money from a potentially overqualified candidate is fear that you will be too expensive for them to hire. Every job at an organization has a range of pay. If they're not at all experienced, you bring them in at the lower part of the range. Mid-range is for people who have one to two years experience, maybe. An overqualified person, young managers who haven't hired a lot of people will make the mistake of thinking, I can't afford this person because their salary range is beyond our range. So I'm not even going to interview them. Done. First. Second of all, why would this person take a cut in pay? Well, you don't necessarily know their situation and there are most instances legally that you can't ask. So don't assume that they're out of your salary range, but know as a prospective employee who's coming in as an overqualified candidate that you need to really clearly define some things to place yourself in a competitive advantage position but not price yourself out of the community. Because the reality is that salary range needs to hold you for at least a year to two. So if we bring a very experienced candidate in and we pay them too much and the salary range is firm for two years, it doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room to give them decent raises upon performance. So that's something that you need to get really skilled at doing as a leader. Otherwise, you're going to just cross out the opportunity to work with really qualified candidates. As the candidate themselves, one way that you can bypass this level of discomfort is to clearly define in your cover letter the following things. What interests you about the job? 
so this is a common thread. This just came up moments ago when I said, when you get into the first interview, really clearly define what interests you about the job. In a cover letter, I like to look at the cover letter, the resume, and the interviews as a feature film debut. The resume and the cover letter are kind of the teasers or the previews. And that preview cover letter needs to draw people in to say, this person has a lot of experience and we need them here. The first thing you want to define in your cover letter, as I said, is what interests you about the job. So do your research, look up the company, what are they investing in? What are they telling Wall Street is going to happen in the next couple of years? Find out some quotes, even if it's a small business from the CEO themselves that talks about the future of the organization and use those quotes in your cover letter. Take a nice quote and say, hey, what really excited me about the possibility of working with this company in this capacity is not just that I had the experience doing it, but I was really intrigued when I read recently that your CEO, Bob Smith, said this about the future of your company. And that's exactly where I want to be. The second thing you need to say, and maybe you can tie it to that quote, is what you're looking to do with your career. So they don't have to worry about asking you those questions. They may dig into the answers a little bit, but what are you looking to do? Align your skills with your will. So here's the quote about the CEO, Bob Smith said this, and it aligns perfectly to my long-term career interests, which also include wanting to work for a company that does X, Y, Z. So really tying things back to your interests, to the skills that you possess. And quite frankly, what does the job description say they're looking for in an ideal candidate? Really want to maximize your opportunity in the cover letter to align the skills with what they're looking for in the job. It is not a bad idea when you are coming in very qualified to talk about why you want to do something that you've done so many times before or for such a long time so that they're not saying, hey, this person's a slacker. Hey, this person's too expensive. Hey, this person is going to expect exorbitant sums of money. Everyone has their niche in life. And if you found something that you enjoy doing that fulfills you, that's the whole point of 52 Weeks of Empowerment. This whole podcast is predicated on the fact that everyone has their niche. So it only benefits you to say what you're good at and why you want to do it. And it only benefits them to have somebody who's best in class to do it. Finally, what you want to put in your cover letter is what you wish to achieve in doing the job. Most employers will, again, assume that you just want to redo this experience to get either on an aggressive career path or because you don't want to challenge yourself. You've got to lay out the fact that this is a challenge. I've done this job before, but not at your company. And here are the reasons why I want to work for your company. And here's what it does for me. Be as upfront as you can. Now, when I do cover letters and resumes for my clients, I give them a templated version of their cover letter with very clear coaching instructions as to how to tweak it in these situations. There are different ways of tweaking a cover letter that a coach can walk you through to align to the job description of the prospective job you're applying for. The other thing that if you're overqualified, you need to really do, and you need to do this even when you're underqualified, <laughs> both sides of the spectrum, but it's really to tailor your resume carefully. What I find a lot of people don't want to do 
when they're overqualified is they don't want to be incredibly verbose about what it is they've done and accomplished because they're afraid that those assumptions that companies make will not get them in the interview. And in some instances, some of my clients didn't do that. They put too much on their resume. And that's in fact, what was happening. They weren't even getting calls back because they were way overqualified for positions. And so I give them this as a litmus test. If you're ignoring facts that are obvious, that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. Use a summary section on your resume to bring to light the skills and the will. Look at, as I said before, the job hunt as a feature film launch. The cover letter and resume are the preview and the teaser ads. The interview is is the debut. What I also do for clients when I work on their resume and cover letter is with their resume, I give them prompts on the resume where to tweak it specifically to align to the job that they're applying for. And it's really easy. In the summary, you need to include actual words from the job description in the qualification section of the job you're applying to. You don't need to have all of them, but there are two reasons why I want people to do that. The number one reason is more than likely you're applying online. You may be applying on a search engine like indeed.com or monster.com. What these sites will do is they will look for specific words or phrases in your resume, sort of like search engine optimization or SEO capabilities. And what they do is they weed out any candidates that don't fit the qualifications this way. So it's really important for you to tweak your resume and your cover letter to include some of those catchwords and phrases. If somebody is looking and listing one of the top three bullets of the job qualifications in a job that you're interested in, and it says requires excellent communication skills. So then you want to write, I possess excellent communication skills. So I would only do that if you really do have those (laughs) and you're going to have to come to the table of the interview with excellent communication skills. But if you want the job, you need to put those catchwords and phrases into the summary section, which is usually the first section of a standard resume. You have to do that. So I give clients tips and tricks and ways to do that. And I also give them templated versions of, as I said, their resume and their cover letter so that they can quickly adapt it and not spend 45 minutes customizing everything because it can become behemoth. It can be really exhausting. If you see 10 jobs you want to apply to, that's 10 different resumes and cover letters that you have to tweak to get the job. Fast and easy templates that people can throw in very quickly. The other way to tailor your resume can carefully if you are an overqualified person, seemingly, is especially with age, finding more mature professionals hesitate to show their graduation date because they're really scared of ageism. And ageism is a real thing. I mean, companies could be held accountable to that. So they're very careful about that, but it does exist. It doesn't exist everywhere though. And I want to make that very clear to my mature professionals out there. I would hire a mature professional, somebody experienced and has seen the industry evolve in industries that are fast moving, fast paced. You're not a dinosaur. The evolutionary experiences you've seen are agile experiences. Agility is something that companies can't 
coach. They can't train people to be agile. Rigidity is a really difficult thing to overcome. So of one of the traits of mature professionals that I always make sure that people are putting on the resume is their ability to adapt and to adapt quickly. That is a huge facet for a tenured professional. If you don't feel comfortable putting dates in, I personally believe dates are irrelevant. So get rid of the graduation date on your alma mater. That's no longer relevant. Months of hire are nitpicky in today's world. If you use one of those resume building websites, they will commonly require you to put in the months of hire. And that's because if you don't put in the months of hire, most HR professionals could care less, but if you put them in, they will look for holes in your resume. Let them ask you, hey, there's a bit of a delta between this role and this role. Why the gap there? Well, laid off and it was hard to find a job at that point in time. Hmm, totally understood. Question answered, moving on. That's the depth to which months and years and dates really matter. Excluding them all together is not a good idea, but what I do for clients as well is give them the wherewithal to feel like they're telling a story about their personal brand. And if there are holes in their resume, that becomes a real struggle for them. How am I going to explain this away? Well, I would put the years in for your experience. And if you worked there from January of 2010 to June of 2010, and you were laid off and you didn't work until November of 2010, I'd be honest about it. If, but you don't have to put the months in. They will ask if they say 2010 to 2010, how long did you work there? Six months. What happened? I got laid off. Oh, okay. So as long as you have the story to represent what happened, all I would give you as some caveat is if too much is missing, it throws up a red flag. So make sure that you are as upfront as possible. You can explain away any holes in your resume, but don't get caught up in the dates. The final thing I would recommend to people that are overqualified, potentially coming into an organization in a role that they've seemingly done before is whatever you say on your resume and cover letter needs to be detailed in your conversation in the interview. That's the feature film debut. So as I mentioned prior, get right to the point. Get right to the point. Thank you for the opportunity to interview for this. I'm here because. And take the show. Be the person that they're looking to be. Reread the job qualifications. Make sure that your catchwords and phrases are incorporated into the interview as well. I know you're looking for somebody with excellent communication skills. Hopefully I've shown you today through our conversation, that I can ask questions and listen, that I can answer questions effectively, and then I can interact with people in a friendly basis. Hopefully I've given you some examples of that. So whatever you say on paper needs to really be heralded in your conversation during the interview. That is really going to be the convincing factor. And getting to the interview, as I said, is simple. Let's review. You want to make sure that your resume and your cover letter have key catchwords and phrases in them, that they perhaps tell most of the story, but maybe not all of it needs to be told. The other thing you need to be really clear on is why you want this job, what excites you about the job, what do you bring to the job that other candidates might not? And what you're looking for in this experience, clear representation of the why behind your interest in a job. I don't care how much experience you have is really the reason why people are going to contact you as a prospective candidate. It's more the 
ta-da, and what you're not saying that they want to know more about and putting too much on the resume and giving them a story they're just going to assume they already know. So clearly giving enough information, but not too much information is very, very important. Whatever information that you give needs to align completely towards the job description and the qualifications. Make sure that you have an editable copy of your resume and your cover letter on file so that you can quickly tweak to those job qualifications and to the interests you have in the role. Remember to clearly define in your cover letter what interests you about the job, even using things like a quote from a CEO or from their company website. Do your homework, find out how much they're paying for this job so that when the conversation comes up about how much you're looking to make, maybe on Glassdoor, you have a range. Ask in your network if there are people that you know that have similar jobs at their company, what's the pay range? Do you know what the pay scale is for a job of this leveling? That would be really helpful if asked how much I want to make. What you're looking to do, align your skills with your will, why you want to do something that you've done before, everyone has their niche, and what you wish to achieve in the job while you're there. You may have done it before, but there may be new things you want to accomplish at a new organization. So don't let them assume. Make sure that's very clear in your cover letter. Tailor your resume carefully, as we talked about. Don't ignore the facts that are too obvious. And again, make these things be a teaser to get them to want to ask you more and to get that inner. What I find is probably the biggest mistake that many of my clients made up front that weren't getting them the interviews is the story they told was it's a story that was experienced, but left no room for the expectation that you're well aware of what they're hiring for in terms of salary and experience. And it's what you're looking for. It's not an act of desperation or being lazy or even an opportunity for you to catapult your career after 20 years of doing the same thing. You're rational, you're pragmatic. This is your niche. Make sure that that is represented on both the cover letter and the resume so that you get that interview. That's all we have for you this week. We have a litany of amazing guests coming up in the next several weeks. We will connect with you next week. Same time, same place, even more power. Mm-hmm.